You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We continue in our Psalms series, looking to Psalm 66 this morning, which starts on page 480, 480 of your pew Bible. And as always, we want you to know that you are welcome to take a Bible home with you if you do not have one of your own. Let us make that a gift to you. Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever. Whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our foot slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you and that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel reading this morning comes from John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. You can find it on page 887 of your Bible. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, 
We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. The gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's uh, take a moment and pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we uh, think about these words of the psalmist, and we think about this interaction between Nathaniel and Jesus this morning, would you meet us in your word and in our own hearts, and would you help us to hear the things that you have to say to us, and help us to know how we might respond to you, we ask in Jesus' name, uh, amen. So, uh, you know, usually in an Anglican church, it's really a good idea if the preacher had read the collect of the day before you get into the service. But I have to admit, I had not read the collect for today. And so in the earlier service, when, uh, when we were reading this, I, I just was kind of floored, honestly, because this appeal to God, right? Grant, O Lord, that the course of this world may be so peaceably ordered by your providence. And we have just come through a week where we've experienced the absence of peaceful ordering, right? We've experienced pain here in Richmond, the shooting in a park following a high school graduation, just horrific, right? Um, it's another incident in a series of incidents and there's no reason to think there won't be more. We live in a world that's very complicated and we have lives that are very complicated. We experience the bumpiness of life in so many ways. And I, so I just wonder, how have you come in this morning? Maybe that event is still on your mind and your heart. Maybe you know someone connected to that community, that part of the community, those neighborhoods. Maybe you're just aware of your own situation in life, right? Your, your issues, right? Maybe it's depression or sadness that sort of lingers over your heart and your life. Maybe it's some fear. Maybe you got laid off from work. Maybe you got a bad diagnosis. And we could just like go on and on and on because life in our world is loaded with painful experiences that make it very, very difficult for us to hear a psalm like this today, right? That says, shout to the Lord all the earth because of God's awesome deeds. We come to worship every single Sunday, and I think it's good to remind ourselves that worship itself is complicated because we have such an array of human experiences. You know, you, you may have come off of a wedding from yesterday, and so there's like joy, right? There's just so many things. Yesterday, my community in Philadelphia uh, had a funeral for a young lady, a mother, a wife, who's 37, she passed away from breast cancer. She has two young children. So it's sadness, right? Worship is complicated when we gather together as God's people. And Psalm 66, I think, reminds us 
that amidst whatever complications you feel this morning, whatever you brought in with you, that the Lord, his loving kindness is reliable in your life right now, whatever those circumstances. So we wanna think about how this Psalm leads us in being a people who can walk through difficulty and joy and deliverance and all kinds of things in life, but we walk through life sort of leaning into the reliability of God's loving kindness. And so three things I wanna focus on, and they are invitation, witness, and response. So first invitation, verses one to four, This is where the psalmist says, shout for joy, right? All the earth, everyone, all lands, all peoples everywhere, shout for joy to the Lord because of his awesome deeds. So think about this word awesome for a moment, right? When you use that word in just ordinary life, what do you attach it to, right? So so yesterday, there's a wonderful butcher in Charlottesville, and um, they have these really amazing ham biscuits. I mean, They exceed what you've ever had, I promise, unless you've been in Charlottesville. So we go get those biscuits, and we're sitting there eating a biscuit. It's got hot honey on it. It's got very shaved, thin, beautiful Virginia ham. The biscuit's plump. It's lovely. And I'm thinking, this is awesome. I might be sitting in a craft brewery and have a beer that I really like and say, it's awesome. I might have a hamburger and say, that's awesome. I might go on a family vacation and say, we had an awesome time. I was just in Montana last week and it was awesome. Like we just sort of attach this word to so many things. And I think our ordinary way of using that word kind of misses the point of scripture at least. Uh, I'm not saying don't use it or attach it in those ways, but I think it misses something of this particular moment the psalmist is inviting us to think about because God's deeds that are awesome are not like a ham biscuit. Right? That's a joke. You can laugh. (laughs) But to get more of the sense of what this might mean or what the psalmist is inviting us really to behold and bear witness to this morning, uh, think about the word awe itself. Because I think the intention is that God's people would find themselves in a regular situation. For us, that's often Sundays when we gather for worship, when our hearts are stirred with a sense of awe because we've remembered what God has done, right? There's a sense of awe. So what is awe? Awe is reverence that is mingled with a holy fear and wonder. So think about this. We don't usually hold both fear and wonder together in our ordinary life, right? You usually have one or the other because when we're afraid, right, we feel unsettled, but usually in a bad way, right? We just sort of terrified, right? My mother-in-law is afraid of snakes. And so when she has a sense of fear, She's aware of where the snake is in the yard at any point. And it's not a good feeling that leaves her saying, I gotta go see that snake a little bit more. She's not curious about the snake. She would rather avoid the snake. But when you wonder, when you're filled with wonder at the same time, you're drawn forward. You're, you, you wanna get closer to this thing. And that's really when the psalmist speaks of the awesome deeds of God, he's pulling these things together. Because whenever God acts in a way that illuminates and reveals the depths of his loving kindness, that is his, you know, that's the word chesed that, that, you know, know, you've heard preachers say this word before. And it's basically a way of talking about God's covenant love, right? His relational love for his people, that he's always faithful. 
He never pulls away from his people. He, he leans into his people further still. And so this is a way of talking about the, the, the deep way that God seeks to connect with us and stay connected with us. So when we behold that, when we recognize in some event that God is doing that, it unsettles us always because it, it, your taken for granted notions of life in the world are just gonna be rattled by God's presence. They just are. Because our sense of what the world, how it works and how we work in the world isn't, you know, we're gonna experience God saying, hey, there's something else. So there's an unsettledness with God's presence, but we're pulled towards it. We're drawn in, we're not repelled by it. Think of Moses at the burning bush. Think of Isaiah in the throne room of God amidst angelic cries. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. Isaiah, a prophet, right, and prophets talk, they speak. He almost becomes speechless, so he, he, he doesn't even have words here to put except woe is me. He's unsettled by the very presence of God, and he experiences actually God in a way that draws him in so that when that moment when, when, when the God is asking who will go for us, Isaiah says, I'll go. He's unsettled, he's drawn in. I think when you jump over into the New Testament, you see it in a story like that here of Nathaniel's encounter with Jesus. Nathaniel's taken for granted way of thinking about the world is unsettled by the person of Jesus. We'll get to that in just a moment. But there's something very beautiful. Nathaniel wants more, not less. I see that in the Apostle Peter multiple times in his life, right? He's always putting his foot in his mouth sometimes. But there's a moment after a large catch of fish, and Peter, all of a sudden, it's like Jesus, he's other. He's, he's not just a pal. He's not just a guy speaking in the public square. He, th there's something unsettling about the person of Jesus. The psalmist says that when these kinds of events happen, right, the display of God's loving kindness, that even God's enemies cringe. They cringe. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. He says, God's enemies slink off like a scolded dog. Have you ever seen that image? A scolded dog slink away, divert its eyes, move backwards. Maybe the dog has the cone of shame on, I don't know. But you get that picture. And that's the image the psalmist leaves us with, is that the point is just this, that when God reveals the glory of his loving kindness, his presence in this unique and particular way that only God can display it, even God's enemies realize that they don't stand a chance. They can't turn back the tide of his loving kindness. And so the psalmist, when he thinks about God's community, they're meant to live by that God to come back to that God over and over and over again because there's a certainty in the future of that God that you won't find certainty any other place in earthly life. So we're invited to worship that God. Now second, witness, bear witness. The Psalm invites us to bear witness to the awesome deeds of God. And very specifically, the Exodus is the event that the psalmist has in mind. And we know that because the psalmist goes on to describe, you know, we walk, through dry, we walk through the sea on dry land. So immediately if you're in Israel and you're hearing this psalm read or talked about and someone says that, you're thinking, oh yeah, we're talking about the Exodus. 
It's a very formative event in the life of our community, of our people, because in that moment, God heard the cry of his people who lived in an enslaved way, a very dehumanizing way to live life with tremendous suffering. And God hears the cry and he delivers them, not just one of them, but them as a collective, the people. When you think about the Exodus this way and the way it functioned in the life of Israel, it's not at all surprising that the formerly enslaved communities in our own country, that they found refuge in this story of the Exodus because they desperately needed to know that God heard their cry. Maybe he'll hear our cry. And that's exactly how this psalm is meant to function in the life of the church, that we just come back to these big events of God and we're meant to think if God did it then, if his loving kindness showed up that way then, maybe his loving kindness will show up that way now. But when you think about the Exodus, what we know about it in the story of Scripture is that it wasn't full, right? Yes, they're out of Egypt, but they're still living in the broken land of the world, and they're still going to suffer. And so verse 10 begins to shift our imagination, maybe to the way they suffered in Egypt, in that dehumanizing space, but also maybe the way they continued to suffer as they wandered around the wilderness. But what the psalmist says is that whether at the peak or whether you're in the valley, God is with us. He's still there. He hasn't departed. One of the commentators puts it this way. He said, God's people have experienced the worst things that human beings can imaginably do to one another. And yet, God meets them and moves them to a broader space, a space of abundance. Echoes of this can be found in Peter's words when he begins to attach in his first letter suffering to this refining fire of God that purifies us and changes us, transforms us the way ore is turned into silver. I see an echo of this in Paul's really famous line, and you've almost certainly said this line out of Romans chapter eight, in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Have you ever said that verse? Think about what it means. It means that if you're currently in a low ebb, in a space of suffering, some know some experience of loss, some difficulty happening in your life or in our world, that one of the things that we can be assured of is that God's loving kindness is the final word over your life, not the suffering. That your life won't get stuck in the trajectory of death, but rather God is with you now and he is moving you toward a place of his abundance, the abundance of his kingdom. And the point here is that we would be a community that bear witness to these events, that we would actively come back to them over and over and over again, which is one of the reasons in our worship, we come to the Lord's table week after week after week after week. We remember the event of Christ's death. And the point is that we remember that God is still with us. He hasn't left us. He has not removed his loving kindness from us. We're still participants in his loving kindness. Whether we're in a moment of miraculous deliverance where we're just delighted that this bad thing is past, or whether we're in the valley and we're suffering in some way, we're reminded that God will finish the project that he started. So very important. So very important for my friends in Philadelphia to hold on to that this morning after they've buried a wife and a mother. Invitation, witness, now response. 
verse 13 through the end of the chapter, here the psalmist takes us really into a pattern of worship that would have been common for them, the offering of burnt offerings, the, um, the practices. These are temple practices. These are activities that you go to the temple and you perform. And there's this reference, again, to performing our vows, which I think, just to echo something I said last week, is that this performance of vows is really a way for us to live into the relationship that we have with a God who displays loving kindness to us. We come to live in a way that fits a life with this God. And that's why we come to worship week after week, is so that we sort of re-anchor, reattach, reimagine our life with God, so that when we exit the doors in the benediction and blessing to go out into the world to serve and love Jesus, that we go out into the world remembering God is with us. Whatever I encounter this week, Eugene Peterson observes on this part of the text, he says, the ecstasy of deliverance cuts a channel in which promises may be kept and repentance practiced. We nurture joy not by seeking new pleasures, but by practicing an old obedience. The obedience of bearing witness, the obedience of practices around repentance and faith. And these are practices that what? They connect us to God. They get us closer to God. They remind us that God is with us as one who loves us. Whatever our circumstances are like, I think about this often in the way I think about whenever you've been to a wedding and you've heard those like odd and shocking, startling marriage vows, right? That regardless of situation, plenty or want, sickness or health, there's at least an aspiration that will persist in the relationship. We won't give up. And that's the same here as we think about our life with God. And there's a sense in which the ecstasy of deliverance, I love that idea of the ecstasy, the ecstasy of deliverance cuts a channel in our lives and in our world that allows us to practice these old activities of worship of repenting and having faith, of remembering the great deeds of God. See, what would allow you to repent except some sweet experience that God is a God who loves you and that he welcomes you? It prompts our return. It moves us forward, not away from him. Now, here's a troubling verse, verse 18. Jump down to it. It's a hard verse because here the psalmist says a, sort of a, a confession of sorts, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have heard me. Like, when you hear that, what rumbles in your heart and mind? I'll just tell you what happens in mine, okay? I'll reveal. I'm like, Lord, why did you put it that way? Because I feel like this isn't necessarily true of me. I feel like I do get stuck in sin. I feel like I do live in the old patterns. I feel like I do sort of return time and time again to really broken ways of being a human. What is the Lord getting at here, the psalmist getting at here in this particular phrase? I want to suggest that the key word here is cherish. Cherish. When you cherish something, what do you do? You attend to it, right? You 
pay attention to it. You celebrate it in some sense, silently or even publicly. You sort of hold on to it as if it were, what, a treasure. You cherish this particular thing. Um, the message translates this, if I had cozied up to evil. It's an interesting way of putting it, right? If I'd cozied up to evil, if I'd made my home with evil, right? In a sense, if I'd sort of gotten super close to it. And I just think the point is this. This is a description of worship. And it's a description, really, of a patterned way of being human. And here the psalmist is essentially saying, the pattern of my life is worship. It's to come back to God through these old ways that the channel of deliverance, the ecstasy of deliverance has cut, right? It's that my pattern of life is repentance and faith. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that, of course, you sin. So the psalmist is not talking about some momentary discovery or revelation or acknowledgement that we sin. In fact, we will soon, in our service, confess our sins to, together, right? We will acknowledge that we're sinners. But that's part of our worship. It's a way in which we're coming back to God and cherishing him, not this broken way of living and being human. What do you cozy up to? What do you cherish? St. Augustine said that there is a love beneath all other loves in the human heart that orders the way we live life places everything in order. It sort of sets the path. It moves us in a trajectory. And so I think verse 18 might just as well be a wonderful prompt for us to just hit pause on life and say, what do I cherish? What do I really care about and treat as ultimate in my life, as the core, as the center of my life? I had a professor in seminary who loved to give us little diagnostic questions periodically. And they were things like this. So if you wanna know what your treasure is, ask yourself, if I just had blank, then life would be worth living. Or I would achieve the good life. Things would be the way they ought to be, right? How would you fill in the blank? If I just had, life would be worth living. Or maybe you ask the opposite question. What do I currently have that if it were taken away, I would feel bereft of life itself? How do you fill in the blanks this morning? For some, it's financial, right? For some of us, it's certainly financial. It's, you know, how many times a day do you go through thinking through what's happening in the markets? Or how many times a day do you go through wondering, you know, you, you know wow, did that really have to happen, Lord? I didn't need to spend this money on that. It's financial, having enough to follow our dreams because our dreams are costly. Cost money to experience your dreams. Or maybe sometimes we want money so that we shore up ourselves and protect ourselves against the vulnerabilities of life in a world like our own. For others, it's some form of success. I just need to achieve something. Like that's how I know I'll be okay. If I just am achieving something, if I'm just acknowledged for achieving something. For others, it's not achievement or your career, maybe it's relationships. If I just could get married, if I just had a spouse who loved me, if my spouse would just change, if I just had children, if my children would just turn out. And it doesn't ever stop. Because if you've had children, when your children are grown-ups, do you know what you worry about? Your children that are grown-ups. What is it that you're tempted to sort of move from a very important place in your life 
to a place of centrality, to what's most important. When I look around our particular moment historically, and it's been true really from the beginning, is we become idolatrous about the countries that we live in. We sort of set them up as if they're infallible. And we celebrate them in a way that displaces God, actually. We do that with a state. We may do that with neighborhoods. We do, you know, just on and on and on, on we do it. And the point, I think, is that these lesser loves that we grasp at, that they get in the way of us tasting the sweetness of God's loving kindness. Our worship is disrupted when our hearts are not in the room, but they're somewhere else. They're off doing something else, wanting something else. It's not that God hears us conditionally or that God hears us selectively, but rather that we always attend to God and to one another, by the way, through the loves of our hearts. That which we cherish shapes the way we interact in the world Think back to the gospel story that we read this morning, Nathaniel. It's a beautiful story. So what do we learn about Nathaniel? He had no imagination for anything good coming out of a rural backwoods place like Nazareth, right? He has a prejudice against that region, maybe against all regions that aren't cool, right? Um, yeah. we, we do that too, right? If, you've lived, if you really love living in Richmond, right, you may look down on people that choose to not live in Richmond. If you really love living in New York City, and this is very true of New Yorkers, by the way, I was one for a season, you know, there's New York and then there's the rest of the country. We tend to sort of develop prejudicial ways of thinking about people who aren't living in the same experience that we have in the world. And that's certainly true of, Naz of, of, of rather Nathaniel here in, as he thinks about Jesus coming out of Nazareth. So Philip, what does he do? He just says, come and see, right? I love that response. Just come, well, come and see, come and see. What's he doing? He is bearing witness to the awesome deed of God. And he's just saying, it's not enough for me to tell you about the awesome deed of God. You need to come see the awesome deed of God. You need to get near the awesome deed of God that is Jesus. So when Jesus sees Nathaniel, he affirms his character, right? Here's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Some translations are in whom there is no guile. In other words, Jesus looks on Nathaniel and says, yeah, what you see is what you get. You are you all the way through. It's like this deep goodness that he affirms in Nathaniel. Can you imagine? That's a beautiful moment. But when someone affirms your character that's never met you, what do you do? You say exactly what Nathaniel said. How do you know me? You don't know me. Or you secretly think in your head, yeah, they're just flattering me. They're just buttering me up. What's next? Nathaniel asks this question, and then Jesus says, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. I love, love, love this story. And the reason I love it is that you and I have no idea what he's talking about. And that's the beauty of it. That's the gold. Because what we begin to learn, very simply, the only thing we learn here is not the content of what Jesus saw in Nathaniel, or Nathaniel doesn't even acknowledge the content, he just melts before Jesus. Right? Jesus says, I saw you. 
not just in general, but in a very particular moment when you were under the tree before Philip called you. And you can see and imagine that running through Nathaniel's mind is that event, whatever Jesus saw. Maybe it was a moment when he wanted to give up. Maybe it was a moment when he wanted to sort of yield the temptation, just throw in the towel. Maybe it was a moment when he actually made a, a tough decision and he said, I'm gonna stick with it. Maybe it was a prayer. Maybe he was enacting a private moment of worship where he's confessing sin and repenting and remembering God's faithfulness amidst some loss, some difficulty. We have no idea. But the point isn't that we would know the particulars of Nathaniel under the fig tree, but that we would know the exact particularity that Jesus says, I was with him. What does Jesus see in your life? In Nathaniel, this beautiful moment overwhelms his heart. Whatever prejudices were walled up, they drop, they fall. And all that Nathaniel can begin to do is to cherish Jesus as the Christ. So what does Jesus see under the metaphorical fig trees of your life? What hard thing are you going through? What secret sin have you never revealed or shared with anybody? What does Jesus behold in your life that you desperately need to know he sees? Your suffering is something he sees. Your joy is something he sees. Your fear is something that he sees. That's the invitation of this text, that we would begin to see Jesus seeing us and that we would become persons who cherish him so that now the enemies of God slink away from our own hearts because Jesus is there. Jesus tells Nathaniel, you haven't seen anything yet, there's more. And the more is the rest of the gospel story. It's all of those beautiful places where Jesus teaches with authority. It's those places where he welcomes in sinful people and people on the margins. It's those places where he speaks a word of forgiveness or he does an act of healing or he feeds hungry people and just on and on it goes because why? Jesus is the ladder between heaven and earth. Heaven and earth are colliding in the person of Jesus and the angels are attending to Jesus in that space and miraculous things happen. But the pinnacle of this awesome display of God's loving kindness in Jesus is shockingly the cross of Christ. When Jesus goes into the net that is spread before his life as the great act of exodus into new creation, as Jesus takes the burden of sin and ruin into his own life story so that we might inhabit new creation, but very oddly in the middle of the old one where bad things and hard things still happen. Back in the fall of um, 2001, Stacy and I lived in Charlottesville at the time with our three young kids, and we were getting ready and packing up the house for a move to New York City. And on 9-11, we were in New York, and we were looking at, at apartments. Our kids were in Philadelphia with friends, and Stacy and I were in the city on that particular morning. We show up at the apartment, and the apartment, um, the, the, uh, the realtor, greets us at the door and says, a plane has hit the World Trade Towers. And not soon after that, a second plane hit the World Trade Center. So we went up on the roof and we watched the towers burning before they fell. It was a really horrific, terrifying moment because no one knew what was going on. 
And all you knew to do was, I've got to escape. I've got to get out. I've got to back out. So it was a fearful experience, not an experience of wonder that drew you in. The very next Sunday at Redeemer, the congregation nearly doubled in size as New Yorkers filed into a space of worship trying to make sense of grief and loss and terror. This past week, I re-listened to Tim's sermon from that particular morning, and I just, again, was stirred. At one point in the service, he's just acknowledging that there are no words that any of us have to put around something like this, or at least we struggle with it. He slows down, and with real tenderness, he looks at the community, and he just says, let's stay. Let's stay. And let's be for the city what the city needs. And he meant by that that what the city needs is a display of God's loving kindness, What our neighbors need is a display of God's loving kindness. What our colleagues in a workplace need is a display of God's loving kindness, a community that bears witness to the awesome deeds of God in Jesus Christ. And I was listening to that on the plane coming home this week, and I just thought, wow. Let's stay. So the question I might put to you and put to myself It's just simply, where is God inviting you to stay? You know, maybe it's here in Richmond. Maybe it's wherever your home is. Maybe it's in a work situation. Maybe it's in a tough spot relationally. Where does he invite you to bear witness to his glory in the person of Jesus by simply the way you begin to express his loving kindness in the world around you? You see, God has not withheld his loving kindness from me. That's the psalmist declaration. And he's not withheld his loving kindness from us. His loving kindness is with us. So what would it be like for you to come and see? To just this moment in worship, let your heart melt before him. Remember that he cherishes you and begin to cherish him as the one who loves you and who is with you to the end and who will carry you into the fullness of his new creation so that you might live in your place of life in this moment, as high or low as it is, in a way that bears witness to the awesome deed of our God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would meet us as we just sit before you this morning in quietness and stillness and Remember that you remember us. Remember that you see us and you behold us and you know the circumstances of our lives. So would you meet us in this place, Father, Son, and Spirit, and lead us to be a people that embody your presence, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.